Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, my friends in Cyberland. Uh, this is Dr. Simon, and I'm going to do what I consider today probably the more important show, the most important show I've ever done before. Um, last week, I took you through a, a, the, the idea that the diagnosing of people as mentally ill and dangerous because of mental illness as a way of controlling gun violence was an absurdity, that uh, we're all diagnosed according to the psychiatric Bible as having a mental illness. I went through a bunch of the diagnostic categories to show you how broad the net is thrown out. And that once you've been diagnosed, and there is some kind of a large computer organization uh, or database of mentally ill, um, anybody can now be denied a gun permit. Uh, Anybody can be denied a whole variety of things because it can be suggested that they're dangerous. The media, uh, in their infinite wisdom and their lack of any kind of uh, serious questioning of issues uh, has gotten on the bandwagon and most of our politicians including those who are more progressive and liberal have joined uh, the chorus of saying uh, we have to be able to do something about the mentally ill to prevent them from getting guns and shooting us Uh, I've suggested now twice that the very act of having a gun makes you potentially dangerous and therefore we could add that if we really wish to the list of mental illnesses but these are all moral judgments uh, I have a moral uh, uh, abhorrence of guns I have a moral abhorrence of violence or acting violently it's nothing to do with medicine uh, there are no diagnostic tests in medicine to predict who will or will not be violent, whether they own guns or they don't own guns. Uh, psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers are notoriously uh, uh, unable to make any accurate predictions about who will or won't commit a violent act. But it got me thinking, as I did that show, is that really was the first time I went through the DSM in some specificity uh, to show you that these are all, in fact, social and moral and ethical labels. They have nothing to do with medicine. Uh, You cannot make, there are no medical tests whatsoever that will able to look at the brain of somebody and predict whether they own a gun or they don't own a gun, whether they will be violent, whether they'll be a mass murderer. It seems to me that the only way we can handle this is to ultimately uh, follow the the moral uh, dicta of our religions and uh, beat our uh, swords into plowshares, and that is to ban weapons. Uh, The world, as I'm looking at it now, is arming for a terrible 
new world war. Korea is threatening uh, South Korea and the United States with nuclear ballistic missiles. Uh, Al-Qaeda, uh, as crazy a group, and I use that in a moral term because, you know, the, the, uh, the desire to kill the enemy uh, is all over the place, may take over Iraq, Afghanistan. They've infiltrated Syria. Uh, the Syrian leadership may be, in fact, using um, poison gas, nuclear gas on, on its own people after the slaughter that's been going on, a total civil war uh, that could spill over anywhere. Iran looking for possibly a nuclear weapon, uh, other weapons that could be delivered to wipe out Israel. Um, Israel has the fourth largest nuclear weapon uh, arsenal in the world. Uh, the conflagration is potential is there. Um, and we don't look uh, at ourselves and ask uh, what is our propensity for violence. Uh, we we don't look at uh, banning the weapons by which um, our desires to kill and slaughter uh, can be uh, prevented or at least ameliorated. Um, and we argue over small issues. Uh, my own field, being psychology, related to psychiatry, uh, doesn't allow nobody allows anybody to open their mouth and say this is all a pretentious crap that there are no such thing as mental illnesses and changing the word to disorder uh but still keeping the underlying notion of of illness that this is a sickness um is ultimately misleading and destructive but what I wanted to do tonight as an outgrowth of last week, having nothing really to do with guns and violence, is to go through the DSM, uh, at least part of it, as related to children. Because when I came into the field 40 years ago, the standard belief was that children could not be diagnosed as mentally ill. Uh, I forget the name of the doctor. I should have tried to find to look it up. It was a female psychiatrist who wrote a very popular book uh, that I got from a book club when I first became a psychologist, late 60s, in which he argued that children, young children, uh, can't become mentally ill because they don't have enough mental development to become ill. Um, she wouldn't argue that they couldn't become brain damaged and, and that some kind of brain damage or chemical abnormality might uh, not cause uh, abnormalities or difficulties in behavior, but just uh, using the term mental illness without any neurological underpinning uh, was absurd to her. Subsequent to that, we have now developed a system of, of uh, diagnostic nonsense, diagnostic terminology that turns almost every child into a uh, disordered or mentally ill individual. And worse, uh, the drug companies have gotten together with their uh, minions in the psychiatric profession to drug many of these children. Now, I've done some of the uh, earlier shows, and you can go down through my archive, and some of the more popular ones uh, I, I, you know, I've done uh, have dealt with this issue. Uh, we don't protect our children. Uh, we don't look at what's being done. Uh, to our children who later will become citizens and citizens that I believe will not really be capable 
of uh, holding forth as creative individuals in a democracy. And what I wanted to do tonight is go through just some of the diagnostic categories to show you how wide this net is and, and how psychiatry has, uh, and the mental health industry has moved itself into every aspect of child's life. Uh, we're now the experts on how to parent, on how to discipline. We're the experts on education. Uh, we're the ones who now determine how teachers should teach or not teach. And so I wanted to go through uh, some of these categories and read some of the specifics about it to show you, to make the point that we're not dealing with a medical issue and that medical people have really nothing to say about this, uh, let alone be the controlling force in so much of how uh, we uh, raise our children, discipline our children, and, and educate our children. So let me start right, uh, with learning disorders, right? formally called academic skills disorders. And I'm going to go through some of these and read some of the diagnostic criteria <coughs> and read for you the fact that there are no laboratory tests or medical tests whatsoever to diagnose these disorders. And I'm going to read through some of the criteria because they're really fascinating, really important to understand what's going on here. When psychologists uh, um, make these diagnoses, school psychologists, without questioning, in most cases, the underlying psychiatric opinions that make up these so-called disorders. So it starts out with the reading disorder. And what are the criteria? That I'm going to read the diagnostic criteria. Reading achievement as measured by individually administered standardized tests of reading accuracy or comprehension is substantially below the expected given person's chronological age, measured intelligence, and age-appropriate education. In other words, for whatever the reason, and we don't know the reason, a child who reads below age expectations or against what we call his IQ, which I need to do a show on sometime, because there's a piece of absurdity that we've swallowed hook, line, and sinker, um, is now to be diagnosed as having a psychiatric not an educational problem to be solved, but a psychiatric disability, right? B, the disturbance in criterion A significantly interferes with academic achievement or activities of daily living that require reading skills. Now, I'm not going to argue, folks, that children shouldn't learn to read. But this is an educational problem, and what this suggests is that the problem is caused by the disability, the disability wouldn't exist if the kid read on age-appropriate level because there is no other criteria, medical, social, or anything else, that can predict the fact that the kid doesn't read on grade level. Okay? Next, mathematics disorder. God, did I have a mathematics disorder through much of my uh, uh, grade school years. 
I was sick for two weeks in the second grade when they taught um, multiple multiplication. That is, when you had, let's say, 22 uh, multiplying 313 rather than 2 times 213. I never quite caught up. I became uh, fearful about uh, about these uh, um, my failure to do math. Uh, it wasn't until I got almost graduate school, and it was called statistics, that I realized I had a pretty good idea of how to do math. All right? Disorders of written expression. Writing skills as measured by individually administered standardized tests or functional assessment of writing skills are substantially below those given a person's chronological age, measured intelligence, and age-appropriate education. And then, of course, the second one, it causes problems that the kid can't write well. These are educational problems. They are not psychiatric problems. And yet, they are in the DSM. Medical doctors deal with this. And medical doctors don't know anything about how to teach children to read. They do know how to write prescriptions. They do know how to suggest that a child should be in psychotherapy for this. Right? So, coordination disorder, expressive language disorder. The net is so wide. It is so wide. Let me go on. Okay. To what is probably one of the most destructive diagnoses anybody has ever come up with, and that is attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Let me tell you in advance that there are no laboratory tests whatsoever. Okay, I'm going to read it to you right out of page 88. There are no laboratory tests, neurological assessments, or attentional assessments that have been established in the diagnostic of clinical assessment of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Tests that require effortful, meaningful processing have been noted to be abnormal in groups of individuals with ADHD compared with peers, but these tests are not of demonstrated utility when one is trying to determine whether a particular individual has the disorder. It is not yet known what fundamental cognitive deficits are responsible for such group differences. In other words, there is no proof whatsoever that there's any kind of medical underpinning, neurological, biological, uh, brain, blood. There are no tests whatsoever. So why are doctors all over this? Because they can drug the child. But let me go on to read the criteria for this, this so-called and tell you in advance. Most of the People diagnosed, in great majority, are boys, and very often very bright boys. My wife and I, some years ago, the day before school was to start, it was Labor Day, a beautiful, beautiful Labor Day. And we were walking on the beach, and we were watching the children, the boys more than the girls, running back and forth into the water, filled with joy. They were wound up. They were excited. They were loving their lives. Okay? The next day, they were expected to go to school and sit quietly in a seat for five hours. 
How realistic is that? We have created a society that is dominated by the idea that education and, and reading, math, etc. are the most important things to make a human being successful. And it's not that they're not important to make you economic. However, the, the, uh, the, the idea that this is a medical problem is absurd. There is no evidence for it. Right? None whatsoever. Let me read now some of the criteria. Six or more of the following symptoms of inattention have persisted for at least six months to a degree that is maladaptive and inconsistent with developmental level. In other words, with school success. I say it's important, school success, but whether this is a medical issue, let's look. A, often fails to give close attention to details or makes careless mistakes in schoolwork or other activities. How many children do you think fall? into this category, particularly boys who wish they were still running around on the beach or throwing a football or playing baseball or spend their time like I did looking out the window wondering when school would end. Often has difficulty sustaining attention in tasks or play activities. Often does not seem to listen when spoken to directly. Often does not follow through with instructions often has difficulty organizing tasks and activities, often avoids dislikes or is reluctant to engage in tasks that require sustained mental effort, such as schoolwork or homework. Doesn't want to do his homework. Often loses things that are necessary for tasks or activities, is easily distracted. Let me pay attention to the word here, often. If you're following this, and this is supposed to be a diagnostic, precise, medical issue. What does often mean? Does often to you necessarily mean often to me? How often is often? And as we go through this, you're going to see that often is often used, constantly used. How often is often? Could the teacher's definition of often when she has 13 kids, 30 kids in a class and is, has to re, get them all to the grade level or else the principal is down on her and the state is down on the principal because we're, we're hysterical about reaching standards as measured by objective tests that have nothing to do with real learning or creativity? Is that what it is? Is the principal's definition of often? Is the mother's definition of often and the father's definition of often equal to each other or equal to the teacher or equal to the principal? Okay. Hyperactivity. Often fidgets with hands or feet or squirms in seat. Don't you love it? Who the hell can sit for five hours in a classroom? My wife was a wonderful uh, uh, special ed teacher. She let the kids move around. When you put them in the seat and you demand that they're in the seat and they have trouble sitting, but even if it's disruptive to the class, does that mean that a medical problem exists? That means that they have to be drugged with powerful uh, 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 stimulant drugs so that they can focus? I'll talk about the stimulant drugs. If not tonight, maybe in another time. Often leaves the seat in classroom 
often runs about or climbs excessively. How does, what is excessive for a kid climbing? Please. Often has difficulty playing or engaging in leisure activities quietly. I love that. Children are supposed to be quiet. They're supposed to be seen and not heard. And when I get to, in a moment, oppositional defiant disorder, you'll see the authoritarian nature of these demands. Put 30 kids in a class and a lot of boys uh, who are bored out of their mind, and boy, are you going to see hyperactivity. And that's another issue that I'm going to raise when I leave it for oppositional defiant disorder. What's going on in that classroom? Does that have anything to do, does the context of what's going on in the room, how they're taught, or how they're engaged psychologically, does that have anything to do with why these kids may be getting out of their seat and running around? Uh, often has difficulty, uh, is often on the go. Often blurts out answers before questions have been completed. Is this a social and moral issue or a medical issue? Please tell me. If you think this is a medical issue, call up. If you're a teacher and you have a couple of kids or a bunch of kids in the class and you have to keep order because order and discipline are important when you have 30 children in a room, yes, but is that a medical issue? I'm sorry. Nothing will convince me that this is anything more than a social and moral issue to be understood within our goals for education and the context in which this behavior takes place. Yes? No? Maybe? You're all so quiet out there. But your children are being diagnosed this way. And rather than say, I, you know, it's interesting. I, I once observed a teacher teaching a class in college about learning disabilities. And I waited till the lecture was over and I went up to her and I said, is it possible that the student isn't learning disabled but the teacher is teaching disabled? And she stared at me like I was a Martian with two heads who just got off the spaceship. The students who were standing nearby laughed. They got it. Maybe the teacher can't teach these kids or this number of kids. Maybe that's the possibility. But in our authoritarian system, our top-down system, it's the student who's to blame when, it doesn't, when the child doesn't learn. Except, by the way, if kids get A, then the teacher takes full responsibility for how good a teacher they are. The parents take full responsibility for how great a parent they are. The school takes responsibility for what a wonderful school they've created and, and run. Right? If the kid screws up, then he's disabled. Or it's his friends that are leading him astray. Or from the parent's point of view, the teachers stink. They don't know how to teach. From the principal's point of view, and maybe the parent's point of view, the teachers can't teach. The parents don't know how to discipline. Watch the blame. But now we have a wonderful way of blaming the kid, but blaming the kid in such a way that he's not really being blamed. He's disordered, and he has a psychiatric problem. Conduct disorder. Let me read. Diagnostic criteria for a conduct disorder. 
a repetitive and persistent pattern of behavior in which the basic rights of others or major age-appropriate societal norms or rules are violated. As manifested by a presence of three or more of the following criteria in the past 12 months, which at least one criterion present in the past six months. Aggression to people and animals often bullies, threatens, and intimidates others, often initiates physical fights, has used a weapon that can cause physical harm to others, a bat, a brick, a bottle, broken bottle, a knife, or a gun has been physically cruel to people, has been physically cruel to animals, has stolen while confronting a victim, has destroyed property, is deceitful, lies, engages in serious violation of rules. Now, such a child, such a child is a problem. A problem to those around them. problem to the school is a problem. But why is the child stealing and doing criminal activity as a child? I could think of dozens of contextual reasons. His father is a criminal because once he turns 18, you're not a conduct disorder anymore. You're an antisocial personality disorder and you will be treated as a criminal by the courts. Why are children behaving this way? What do psychologists, psychiatrists have to do with the morality of the child? Unless, and I've worked with these children, I treat them as a human being and try to understand why they're angry, why they're breaking the rules in order to get them to stop doing it. And most of the time, if I can't get the family to institute appropriate rules and appropriate discipline, it fails. Or look at the larger system. Our society is more crooked at this point. It's corrupt. The bankers rob the banks. The politicians, half of them are on the take. A child who looks around, are athletes cheat? Do you think this could have something to do with the fact that these youngsters are behaving in, in, in a criminal way as children? It's a problem. It's a big problem. It's a big social problem. It's a big personal problem for the child who behaves this way and for the adults who have to deal with them. But it has no evidence that is a medical problem, and psychiatrists who treat them are not treating them as a medical issue, even though they pretend to do so, and the prescription pads will be out. Now we come to my favorite, oppositional defiant disorder. This is where the entire logical system of psychiatry breaks down more than any other so-called diagnostic category. Let me read the criteria for oppositional defiant disorder. A pattern of negativistic, hostile, and defiant behavior lasting at least six months during which four or more of the following are present. One, often loses temper. Two, often argues with adults. Notice the often boys and girls. How often is often? Well, it's anyway, anything you want it. Once a month, once a week, two times a week, once a day. It can be anything you want it to be because the net that we cast out to diagnose people as having psychiatric problems and disabilities is so flexible and so wide that it could be anything anybody wants it to be. 
often acts actively defies or refuses to comply with adult requests or rules, often deliberately annoys people, often blames others for his or her mistakes or misbehavior. Is there anybody in our society who says, yes, I did it and I'm sorry? Is there? I'm sorry, I don't hear that. Often blames others, oh, is often touchy or easily annoyed by others, is often angry and resentful, often spiteful and vindictive. Angry and resentful towards what? What might the child be angry about and resentful about? Do you see what's being done here? Let me take you through the list the things that are missing to try to understand why this child often argues with adults or blames others for his mistakes or is angry. First, there is no mention in any diagnostic category, this or any other, of the relationships that enfold the child. What's going on in the family? In this, the family does not exist. And let me stop for a second and talk about an awareness that developed in me when listening to a psychoanalytically trained therapist present the case in the clinic that I worked at for 25 years. He was working with a child uh, who had some kind of a problem, I don't really remember, and the mother was pestering him for information about what was going on in the session and what was going on in her child? What was he telling her, the therapist, him? And he wouldn't tell the mother anything because the relationship between him and the child was bound by confidentiality. I thought the top of my head would blow right off. And I must tell you, at this time I fought constantly, and sometimes I lost my temper, which wasn't a wise thing to do, about these diagnostic categories, the nonsense of it. This is a child who has a family and a mother who concerned about him. What goes on between this child and the mother? What does it mean when the therapist says he is the diagnosed individual because that's what was the, the, the way insurance is set up and the way the hospital clinic was set up. And I was told he's the designated patient, the individual. There is no context. There is no family. There's no history to anything that we're presented. Just the list of his behaviors. And the problem is in the child. It comes out of him. Not because there's a motive, but because we've made the diagnosis. We're going around in the same circle. We make a label because the behavior exists. And the label now explains the behavior. Nothing else can get in. And the therapy of the child excludes the family from the problem. One of the best moments of my life as a professional was when working with a child who was diagnosed alternately as conduct disorder and oppositional defiant disorder. I loved this kid. He was bright. The father was a cop, never home. And when he did come home, he came home drunk. The father's job was consuming him and destroying him. Because if you know anything about the rate of alcoholism and drug addiction and the unhappiness of policemen who work on the underside of society, without our support, very often with our suspicion and our hostility, 
if you if you understand that, you can understand the father's behavior in the context of his life. The father, if the mother said, what happened at work, you're upset, I'm not upset, and don't talk to me about it. How often, ladies, if you ask your husbands or boyfriends to talk about what's obviously bothering them, do they tell you to mind your own business? A man doesn't say there's something bothering him. It makes, takes it away from being a man. And a cop who wears a gun is the kind of man who very often cannot talk about anything of the horror that he's seen or the things that he may have done to people in the course of being an officer of the law. The boy wanted his father. Well, I saw the kid for about a year, and I worked with the mother because I stopped working with individual children if there were parents. I demanded that the parents be part of the therapy because this wasn't a child's problem. This is a family issue. I wish I could drag the entire society into the room because this is never only a family problem because the family is embedded in a culture, and it's a cultural problem. But since you can't work with the culture and Medicare doesn't pay or health insurance doesn't pay, but it would pay for the family if I diagnosed the child as the individual patient. It's a crazy system, folks. It's a bad system. It makes no sense, but this is how it's done. About a year after working with the mother and the child, sometimes the mother, sometimes the child, the mother decided she'd have enough. And, she, and this came out of our work. She loved her husband. She wanted her husband to be the father of, of her children and her husband in the full sense of the word. It wasn't happening. And she said to him, if we can't change our relationship, if we can't change how our family exists, because she was taking on the idea this is not separate individuals, but a family issue, okay? I'm leaving you. He came in. He came in. And he was a sad, forlorn, unhappy individual. There was no hostility. I expected when he came in he would be hostile. But he wasn't. He was sad. He was beaten up. He was drinking too much. He was overweight. He had nightmares. This man, my heart went out to him. And we talked, and we talked about his job and what was so painful to him. And finally, he said to me, maybe you and I and my son should all get together. You had seen my wife and my son. How about I come in with my son? And he brought in the son. I remember the day there was sunlight coming. It was about three, four in the afternoon. He brought the boy in. And he said to the boy, I know there are things you want to say to me. And this boy said, yes. He said, you know what? I'll leave. You can tell the doctor because he's your doctor. And I said, no, I'm leaving. You too have to talk. I'm leaving. You're his father. I'm nothing to him but a surrogate. I left. It was beautiful what happened between this boy and the father. It doesn't often work this way, but it was beautiful. And a few sessions together and a couple of days with the father and the father going into AA and the father changing and struggling to change his behavior. And he went to another therapist that the, that the police force uh, uh, out in Long Island recommended for him. I never had to see them again. Okay. I'll do a show sometime on family therapy. 
over and over when I said to the parents, this is a parental problem and you have to be his therapist because I see the kid for 40 minutes a week and you see the kid 24-7, you have to be the therapist. I don't blame the parents for causing it. That's, that's hopeless. At that point, most of the kids' problems disappear. They're made worse by saying to a child, you talk to me, the professional, but you can't talk to your mother about what happens in the session. This is personal and private between us. This is an obscenity. But it comes right out of this idea that there's a medical problem and the doctor has to treat it. The professional is the one to treat it. Okay? So, are there others? Let me go to a couple of others, and then I'm going to stop my show because there's a really good movie on tonight, Zero Dark Thirty, that I've been wanting to see. Separation Anxiety Disorder. Now we're diagnosing infants and very young children. Forget the context of their life. Forget the history. Forget role modeling. Forget culture. Forget the politics. Forget the discipline and the lifestyle of the family in any of these categories. They have nothing to do with it. What we have is a piece of behavior that's disturbing, not age-related, causes disruption in the family, causes disruption in the classroom. The kid is blamed. And by the way, go to oppositional defiant disorder, argues with adults. Anybody here ever have a teacher they argued with and deep down believed they were right and the teacher was wrong? Could it be? This is so completely authoritarian because what it says is the adult is always right. Children shouldn't argue. Now, hopefully children will learn to argue in a way that's not disruptive and it's not uh, 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 violent. <laughs> Most of the adults I know can't argue that way. You should see what happens when anything the political starts getting discussed in my community. Uh, a lot of the, the, the more Republican right-wingers uh, have guns. One worries, really worries. Is the kid role-modeling? The, the, the potential violence or the outrage in the father who screams and yells and has intermittent explosive disorder, that bizarre one that I mentioned uh, last week, and taking over for the father, this it, taking after the father's behavior, separation anxiety disorder. I, this is so beautiful. Developmentally inappropriate or excessive anxiety concerning separation from home or from those from, to whom the individual is attached as evidence of three or more of the following. Recurrent excessive distress when separation from home or major attachment figures is anticipated. Persistent and excessive worry about losing or possible harm performing, befalling major attachment figures. If your father's a cop and goes out wearing a gun, What's excessive about the child's worry about the father? If the father's in the military, what's excessive? Or if the child watches the news on television and notices that uh, in a movie theater, a dozen adults and children are gunned down by, by some individual and his parents are going to the movies, is that excessive that he's worried? What could be excessive about it? 
Persistent and excessive worry that an untoward event will lead to separation from a major attachment figure. Should we know about the dynamics of this family before we start saying these things? Are the dynamics important? Are the parents threatening divorce? Has there been a divorce? Has there been a recent death in the family? Are any of these things, folks, in any way important in trying to understand why this particular child is fearful of leaving home or losing his parents or a parent? Is it? Please, boys and girls, call and tell me I'm being excessive in my, my loathing and the silliness of this as a medical issue. There is no biological or medical problem at all that can predict this behavior. It comes out of social context. It comes out of the events of a family and a society that the child is living in. All right? Let's go to another beautiful one. Reactive attachment disorder of infancy of early childhood. Let's cover everybody. Everybody has to be mentally ill, even an infant. Let me, let me read this one because this is really beautiful. A markedly disturbed and developmentally inappropriate social relatedness in most contexts beginning before age five as evidenced by either one or two. Persistent failure to initiate or respond in a developmentally appropriate fashion to most social interactions as manifested by excessively inhibited, hypervigilant, or highly ambivalent and contradictory responses. Two, diffuse attachments as manifest by indiscriminate sociability with marked inability to exhibit appropriate selective attachments. That is, for example, excessive familiarity with relative strangers or lack of selectivity in choice of attachment figures. B, the disturbance in criterion A is not accounted for solely by developmental delay, such as mental retardation, which I ignored. And C, pathogenic care, as evidenced by at least one of the following. One, persistent disregard of the child's basic emotional needs for comfort, stimulation, and affection. Persistent disregard of the child's basic physical needs. Three, repeated changes of primary caregiver that prevent formation of stable attachments, that is, frequent change in foster care. Does your head spin, boys and girls? When I read this, my head spins. Can this be anything more than an infant's adaptive struggle in a situation where if the adult does not pay attention appropriately to the child? When are we going to put this in context? When are we going to get rid of this system of diagnosis that has turned our children into mental patients? And the first line of so-called treatment are drugs. We're drugging babies. We're drugging two-year-olds. We're drugging three-year-olds. We are drugging school children. We're demanding of parents at the cost of having their children removed from the home if they don't go for therapy. A therapy very often that puts the child in a room with a therapist who does play therapy and leaves the parent in the waiting room as if somehow the problems that grow out of the family and the culture of society can be played away 
with with a chess or a checkers or or, or uh, what were some of the games I used to play with kids when I used to refer to myself as rent the pop. This is the system we have. So we are all under this system of the DSM mentally ill. I can't wait to see the DSM-5. I promise to do a show on it because more and more and more diagnostic categories are being added. Anybody want to call me? If you listen to this show and you like it, tell your friends. Promote it. Oh, I forgot to put it on Facebook and Blog Talk Radio, so I'm going to send that out. I don't know what good that does. But anyway, I'm going to watch Zero Dark Thirty and really get myself good and upset about that show uh, because I don't believe that torture gets the evidence that this show suggests. But anything that can be nominated for the Academy Award usually deserves my attention. So I'm going to let myself get to 45 minutes. If nobody calls, if nobody sends me a message, I'm going to end the show and go watch a picture. Okay, folks, you've had your last chance. Have a good night, a good day. Uh, Next week, I'm not doing a show because I have family coming down. I'm going to spend the time with my grandchild. Next Wednesday, it will be in one of my favorite restaurants with my daughter and my granddaughter and my wife. Uh, Order a nice bottle of wine. Have a great dinner. (laughs) I can't wait. Goodbye. Every day, we rise challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.